Welcome to City Life Church, and this is our podcast. This is Pastor Dave Diefendorf, and we are so honored to have you join us today. Our passion is to help you discover who God is, grow in the likeness of Jesus, and lead well in this generation. I hope in this message, God will meet you where you're at and take you to the next level in your connection with Him and His kingdom. Enjoy the message. Well, we are going to dive into a little second part of, I, I start, we're in this, se- this season called Advent. Let me just kind of set this up real quick. We're in the season called Advent. Advent traditionally um, in church history um, had nothing to do with Christmas. Actually, it had something to do with, in the church calendar, this thing called the Epiphany or Epiphany celebration. And in the history of the church, they would, um, in Advent, it would be kind of like a season of Lent. You know how like before Easter, there's a period of Lent where for 40 days before Easter, you know, you kind of fast. Well, Advent's kind of the same thing to a thing called the Epiphany. And this is where uh, people would really kind of really get serious, really start making uh, bigger decisions as the year was winding down, uh, really starting to evaluate their life and and starting the the new year off with, man, I'm headed in a different direction. And so really, Advent is a time for us to maybe slow down a little bit and allow God to maybe grab our attention where maybe in the busyness and the hustle of life, uh, we might just kind of slip right on by. But really, this season of Advent is time to just kind of chill down, calm down, let's hear what God's saying. We started last week saying it's really hard, you know, the Christmas story, you're kind of starting in the middle of the story. Um, It's really hard to pick up a novel and crack that open and be right in the, and start right in the middle and understand what's going on. And so last week we started off way at the beginning in Genesis. And today we're going to move forward a little bit uh, into the, the nation of Israel and the story of Israel. Uh, but I think you're going to get a lot out of it. And uh, let's pray before we dive in. Jesus, God, thank you so much for your word. That as culture changes, as people change, as things let us down, as expectations are dashed, God, we can turn to your word. God, your word is never changing. God, it is solid. It is a firm foundation. It is your voice and message and story to us that, God, as we look to your word, God, that we can begin to see things we've never seen before. God, we can build, uh, start building things in our life that we've never thought about building, but God, that will yield fruit. Lord, I pray that, Lord, no matter where we're at with you, God, your Holy Spirit would minister to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'll start with this. I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but you and I are hardwired for hope. You and I are hardwired for hope. Every decision you make, Every choice you make, every response you have to situations or relationships in your life, it's fueled and motivated by hope. Now, that's like, wow, that's pretty reductionistic. But your story is a hope story. If you look back in your life, probably the moments of highlight were moments where hope came through, where maybe the times that were the darkest, that's where hope was dashed. That's where hope disappointed. And so as you look back in your life, uh, your story is a hope story. Now, here's what hope is. Hope is always an expectation and an object. I'll reverse that. Hope is always an object 
with an expectation. You're always hoping in something and asking that something to deliver something to you. That's what hope is. Hope is always an object and always an expectation. For example, if you hope in money, there is an expectation that that is going to deliver something to you, right? However, we tend to look for hope in all the wrong places. Humanity tends to look for hope in all the wrong places. We look for it where it can't be found. And so we're often disappointed, confused, uh, left frustrated because we want things to give us hope that just can't give us hope. So in other words, we attach ourselves to hope that will just never deliver what we're asking it to deliver. So today we're going to talk about this unfolding hope story that we find in the Scriptures. And two things about hope before we dive in, okay? So the doorway to hope is hopelessness. The doorway to true hope is hopelessness. And we're going to see this in this passage in Isaiah 59. The doorway to hope is hopelessness. The only way you'll ever find true hope is to give up on all those other places where you've tended to put your hope in hopes that that will deliver. But we can come to the end of ourselves realizing that those things will never satisfy the longing of our heart and that hopelessness leads us to true hope. Second thing, hope to be reliable and trustworthy must fix what is broken. True hope has to fix what is broken. Hope to be hope must address the biggest, deepest, darkest dilemmas of our lives. If hope can't fix what is broken, why in the world would you hope in it? So, turn with your Bibles to Isaiah 59. If you've got a Bible in front of you or on your phone, I encourage you to get the old school version. A little more interactive in my personal opinion, but anyway, Isaiah 59. This is a brilliant hope passage. It is written in one of the darkest moments in the history of the nation of Israel. Now, before I describe the context, I want to ask a question. When life is hard for you, when it's difficult, when it's confusing, when you're dealing with the unexpected, when your life is not what you would like your story to be, where do you run for hope? Where do you run? Where do you turn to? Where do you run for comfort, for security? Where do you run and hide? Where is your functional hope? What answers, where do we run to? What do we run to? That's your functional hope. The children of Israel had been in captivity and exile in Babylon, and they have come back now to Jerusalem, and it's a mess. There's no city walls, there's no more temple, so the, the king of Babylon let the Nehemiah with a few others, they start go rebuilding, but he, he funds them and he lets them go back to the promised land, but as they come back, they find that their temple has now been destroyed. The city walls have been destroyed. There is no functional government at all. There is no enforceable set of laws. There's no obvious leadership. There is no justice in Jerusalem. There is violence in the street. There's massive poverty. This is complete, fundamental, widespread social breakdown, and it is a mess. And into that darkness... 
There may be, this may be one of the most excellent discussions of hope in Scripture. Because it's in those dark moments your true, real hope will be exposed. Your true, real hope will come through for you or it'll deeply disappoint you. Okay? So I want to outline this chapter real quick because, um, yeah, just going to outline it so we know where we're going. I think it'll be helpful. It divides this kind of this whole chapter into four different sections. We start with the first section, verse 1. There's a false charge against God. There's a false charge against God. That's where we're going to start. Then in verse 2, there's uh, the uh, divine accusation, verse 2 to 9. God's divine accusation over the people. And then we'll get to a confession, a very important confession in verse 9. And then finally in uh, verse 16, there's divine intervention. Okay, so that's kind of the general outline. False charge, a divine accusation, there's a confession, and then there's divine intervention. So let's look at Isaiah 59 verse 1. Let's dive right in. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dull, that it cannot hear. God, through the prophet, is answering a charge that God's people are making against God, that he cannot hear, that his hand cannot save. You see, what often, what often happens to us is this. It happens to us as well. When life isn't working, when, life, when we're suffering in some way, when we're disappointed in some way, when the comfort and ease that we're so often enjoyed is interrupted, it's very tempting for us to bring God into the court of our judgment and question His faithfulness, question His goodness, question His goodness and His love. And it's very tempting to say, God, where are you? Where is your faithfulness? Where is your grace? Where is your love? I thought you were near to me. I thought you answered my prayers. God, where are you? you ever had that? There's a part of me that hopes that we all have this moment of, God, where are you? Because it's finally bringing us down to the very core of who we are and we get to what's true. But that's a side note. But it's very tempting for us to say. And that's exactly what these people in this moment are doing. This darkest moment, the nation of Israel, they've come back and everything's destroyed. They have to rebuild and here's what's devastating about this. When we allow our heart to begin to question God's wisdom, when we allow our heart to question His goodness or question His presence in our lives, when we begin to question those to the degree that we question God in that way is the degree that we don't run to Him. We don't run towards Him for help because you don't go to somebody for help of somebody you've come to doubt. And so the degree that you've convinced yourself that God is less than faithful to His promises, that God is less than loving, that God is not as near as you thought, you will quit running to Him. And that's exactly what is happening here. So God says, no, 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 you got it all wrong. What's going on is not a sign that my hands are too short to reach you. What's going on is not a sign that my ears are so dull that it cannot hear you. I'm not the problem. Another prophet, and there's another book in the Bible named Amos, and he was a prophet. He echoes what Isaiah is trying to say in Amos chapter 4, 
The chapter is essentially a poem, and it's a poem in which this refrain happens again and again. But you have not returned to me. But you have not returned to me. So what God is saying is these difficulties are in your life in order to pry open your hands to let go of the things that you're putting hope in so that you would run to me, so that you would place your faith and trust in me, that you would return to me. These difficulties are not a sign of my absence. Actually, they're a sign that I am near. And I'm seeking my I'm seeking to wrap my arms around you. I'm seeking to get you to return to me in real, true, living faith. So I've brought you through difficulty, not because I don't love you, not because I can't hear your prayer, not because I'm too weak, not because I don't care. I've done so precisely because I love you and I am near. You've got it wrong. It's a misplaced charge. So this misplaced charge is followed by a divine accusation. Look at starting in verse 2. It says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And then it goes on to describe the real problem. Here's what I like to think I like to think that my biggest, deepest problems that I have are outside of me, it's out there. The biggest problems are the situations or maybe problems of location or problems in relationships. I tend to think that I'm one of the good guys. And God says, no, I'm not the problem. Let me tell you what is the problem. You're the problem. Woo. All right. Okay. Woo. After we get by the offense of that, when we really start thinking, we would start admitting that that's probably true. The problem actually exists inside of us, and it just seems comforting to say, I'm not the problem. Isn't that why people like activism? We've seen a lot of protests in America over the last three years. We've never, but though we've, you'll never find somebody in a protest carrying a sign with an arrow pointing down saying, I'm the problem. Never see that sign. Never see that sign, and no matter what kind of protest. That sign isn't being hung because the reason we love protest is because we love to say, ha, 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 you're the problem, I'm not. And it's just baloney because at the base of all those things we think are problems, what do you find? People, people, broken, hopeless people. Think with me for a minute. There's no such thing as a bad marriage. There is no such thing as a bad marriage, as if something happened to my marriage that doesn't involve me. Man, how did I get in this bad marriage? Isn't that craziness, isn't it? It doesn't make sense. A bad marriage is a bad marriage because people within that marriage are doing bad things. At the end of a bad marriage, what do you find? Us. People. In the city of Philadelphia, they used to have a great old school, I don't know, great, debatable, but an old school Italian mayor. He was a bit of a thug. They loved him. He was a mob sort of guy. His name was Frank Rizzo. And he did not understand the concept of being politically correct. He was fundamentally politically incorrect all the time. And he would have these Tuesday afternoon press conferences that would basically just him be doing stand-up. 
just high comedy, and everyone in Philadelphia watched his press conferences. Well, there was one noble young reporter one day who asked Frank Rizzo what, was what he was going to do about the street crime in Philadelphia. He stood up to the microphone, and he said, the streets in Philadelphia don't commit any crime. It's all done by people. Next question. And he's exactly right. The streets have never committed any crime. People do. People do. How about corrupt government? Uh-oh. Ooh. The institution itself is not the problem. The problem is people in the government who use their power for personal gain and ulterior agendas and don't actually exercise their authority for the welfare of the citizens. You get to the problem, you get to the bottom of corrupt government, what do you find? Us, people, we're the problem. We've taken God's beautiful, glorious, wisely created institutions of marriage and education and government, and we have corrupted them. We've made a mess of them. It's us. And that means you can't find hope running to a new situation, running to a new location, running to a new relationship. Because where do you find? What do you find at the place of all those? People. Us. <laughs> I know you've been down those roads. And you're like, man, I found people at the end of this. I was expecting something different. <laughs> it's so funny. And so we realize that God's right. That the problem is, is that there's something that lurks inside you and me that is dark and dangerous, that kidnaps our thoughts, that diverts our desires, that distorts our words and drives our behavior. And the prophet in this chapter uses three words for this thing, this darkness. And he uses three words. The first one is he uses the word iniquity. It's kind of an old school term. We don't really use it. Uh, you wouldn't hear that term on the nightly news or kind of out, you know, at the gas and sip QT. You know, iniquity is probably a weird word. So what is that? Iniquity means moral uncleanness. I like to think that I'm pure but I'm not. I like to think that my motives are always pure. They're not. My, that my desires are pure, that my purposes aren't always, that, that my thoughts aren't always pure. There's a moral uncleanness inside of us. The second word is transgression. Transgression, it's high-handed rebellion. It is willfully going over the boundaries that you know are there. That's transgression. It's it willingly step over the boundaries of God's rules, and we do it because we don't care. It's the moment that we, we park in the no parking spot even though we see the sign, and we just don't care. Simple transgression right there. Or if you're a husband this week, and you yelled at your wife, you didn't yell at your wife because you were ignorant that that was wrong. You yelled at her in that moment because you didn't care. You didn't give a rip that that was wrong because there was something that you wanted. If you cheat on your taxes, you don't cheat on your taxes because you're ignorant that that's wrong. You cheat on your taxes because at that moment, you don't care what's right. You don't care what's wrong. You'll just willingly step over that boundary because you want something else. It's transgression. And then last, this word, iniquity, transgression, and the last one is sin. Now, sin is an archery term. 
Sin is falling short of the mark again and again. It's pulling back the arrow as hard as you physically can. Within all your strength, all your muscles, you pull that arrow back and you let it fly. And it falls short every time. Short every time. As hard as you try, it falls short. That's sin. You fall short every time. So because there's yet iniquity inside of me, because there's yet transgression inside of me, because there's still sin inside of me, I make a mess of God's good creations. Because you can't blame situations, you can't blame locations, you just can't blame other people, because at the bottom of that is us. And our greatest problem, the thing that most needs to be fixed is inside of us, not outside of us. That's the truth. And you'll never find hope if you don't listen to God's accusation. Well, that accusation is followed by a confession. Again, we're kind of going through this. This is kind of phase three. There's a confession. Look at verse nine. It says, therefore, justice is far from us. This is the people declaring, kind of, therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. They confessed the truth of what was really going on. They were a people who have completely lost their way. They are groping around in the dark. And when you've lost your way, you're at a very significant moment of decision. You will either point the finger that the problem is not me, it's out there. I'll either point the finger or I'll make the confession. I'll either point the finger or I'll make the confession. And that's what actually happens next in verse 12. They say, for our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. God, we accept it. We accept that we're the problem. You're right. It's me. And once you're there, you are now in an utterly helpless place. Because you're saying, I've got a big, deep, abiding problem that I cannot solve because I can't run from a situation, I can't run from a location, I can't run from a relationship because wherever I run, I'm there. I can't run from me. And so this is hopelessness. This is God, I've got a problem that I can't solve. That is the doorway to real hope. Because it tells you it's not only is it hopeless to hope in you, but it's hopeless to hope in anyone else too? Hmm. Because they all suffer from the same condition. And all these locations and all these situations and all these places are populated by people who desperately are as hopeless as you are. There is no hope to be found. And it's only when we give up on all that horizontal hope that you are ready to find true hope where it can only be found. So some of you have to abandon hope. You've got to not going to meet a person who's going to, you're not going to meet a person who's going to give you life. 
You're not going to get a job that's going to be worth live, make life worth living. You're not going to you're 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 not going to own a possession that will give you the happiness that you seek. You're not going to have an experience that'll fulfill you. None of those things will ever do that. And look at the brilliance of where this passage goes next, starting in the second half of verse 15. Verse 15. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered there was no one to intercede. Here's what God's saying. He's looking around, and he says, man, there is no horizontal place for hope to be found. None. No one able to give you the hope that you're seeking. In light of this disaster, in light of this rebellion, this transgression and sin and iniquity, look what God does next. He doesn't turn his back. He doesn't walk away and say, hey, I'm going to wipe you out like last time. He turns and says this, Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. Now, whenever you see the phrase in the Old Testament, the arm of the Lord, okay? It's kind of weird. God didn't really have a body before then, but he's using kind of, you know, physical features. But it's the arm of the Lord, and it means, it's anytime the arm of the Lord is mentioned in the Old Testament, it means the Messiah, the arm of the Lord. I'm going to send the strength and the arm of the Lord to help you. And so throughout the Old Testament, whenever you see that word, arm of the Lord, it means the Messiah. What God is saying, now that you're at this moment where you utterly have no hope, nowhere to look, I'm going to send you hope because it's not going to be a situation. It's not going to be a human relationship, and it won't be a location. It'll be a person, a Messiah. Hope is going to come. And that promised hope would bring two things with him, justice and grace. Look at the verses that follow. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord. From the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. God is going to deal with evil. He's going to punish wrong. He's going to judge it. Evil will be repaid. These word pictures should bring some sobriety and comfort at the same time. It's very clear that the prophet is saying that the world is a moral world, that it is ruled by a holy God that takes sin seriously. Sin is serious. Sin is evil. Sin is disastrous, and it leads to death. And this holy God will never say, it is okay for you to sin as long as you're happy. It's all right. Transgress, iniquity, iniquity away. You know, like, it really doesn't matter because at the end, well, I'll just sum it up. I got you. That's not God's grace. That's a twisted form and a very great Luciferian uh, interpretation of God's grace. As long as you're happy, I'm fine. No, this is a holy God that hates sin. He will not tolerate it. And it's very clear that this is a God that is absolutely committed to justice perfectly. 
But there's also comfort in these words. It's because you wouldn't want to live in a world where the person ruling the world was incapable of being angry with evil. But there's a way in which God's righteous anger and His holy justice is there's hope in the universe that there is a God that brings justice, that loves justice. Amen. Come on. He will not relent and He will not quit until every molecule of sin is delivered out of every cell of every heart of every one of His children. But He doesn't just come armed with justice, He comes armed with grace. Look Look at these words in verse 20. Last verse, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord, I am going to send a redeemer. Man, redemption is such a beautiful term. To redeem means to buy something back. Someone or something was enslaved, and that person buys their freedom. They are redeemed. Free and fully. To redeem means to buy something back. I'm going to send my son. This is God. He's going to live on your behalf the perfect life that you couldn't live. He's going to take your sin on himself and die a death that you should die. But he dies as a perfect land, a perfect sacrifice. And his death satisfies God's wrath. And in sin's place, he gives eternal infinite and abundant life that can begin now in this world and the world to come. You see, these Old Testament saints were living in the messiness in between the already and the not yet. Already they had been redeemed from Egypt. Already the law had been given. Already the prophets had spoken. Already the glory of God had lived in the center of the people of Israel, but not yet had the promised Messiah come. They were living in messiness and holding on to hope. And you and I too live also in the middle of the already and not yet. You will reach out somewhere for, when, and in, in, we've already, Jesus has already come. He's already given us His Holy Spirit and His Word. But He has yet to come Again, And so we too live in this messy middle. And in that messy middle, we are tempted to look for hope in this life. But our tendency is to look for hope in all the wrong places. And so hopefully, as we kind of walk through Isaiah 59, we can see that no location, no situation, no personal relationship, will ever give you the hope that your heart is crying out for other than hope of the Messiah being sent. And we can celebrate in this time that, dude, he's here. And he wants to redeem people in every generation. He wants to redeem people, buy them back, and bring them into his family. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for the promise of the Messiah and your promise-making, promise-keeping by sending Jesus. God, that's why the angels were rejoicing in the heavens. God, that's why the shepherds were rejoicing with the angels. It's because, God, that was a people that was looking for the promised Messiah 
the one that would bring true hope. So, Lord, I pray that, Lord, if there's any God places in our heart that we're looking to for hope, that we're looking to to bring us identity or fulfillment or life, like the life that we crave, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us see that those are mirages, those are caricatures, those are papier-mâché versions of the real hope, the real life that you have came to demonstrate and pay with your blood that you were raised from the dead to confirm that, Father, you are the promise-keeping God who promised a Redeemer and sent him in Bethlehem. So, Father, I pray that, Lord, during this season, God, we would not get caught up in religious nostalgia, but, God, we would see that, man, the greatest and the only hope for our planet, for our nation, for our family, and for ourselves is you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we hope this message has inspired you and challenged you to be the man or woman he's called you to be now and to see his kingdom grow in every area and arena of life. God is with you more than you know. For more information about our community here in Kansas City, please visit us online at citylifekc.org, and we'll see you next time on the City Life Podcast.